Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. 20 years ago, I was a reporter in Spokane, Washington, and covered the Aryan nations getting kicked out of Hayden Lake, Idaho, after losing their compound in a lawsuit from the Southern Poverty Law Center. As someone who grew up in the northeast of the U.S., the idea of a group like the Aryan nations even existing was anathema, and watching it parade down Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, was surrealistic. The Aryan nation quietly departed Idaho in, at the time, what felt like a last gasp at white supremacism. That was obviously not the case, as we now see in a proliferation of groups across the U.S. to take up that banner. And they are taking bold actions, including the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the current state of white supremacist groups in the U.S. is Jason Blazakis, a senior research fellow at the Sufon Center. Jason is a terrorism expert who devises strategies to prevent terrorists from gaining access to money and publicity. He presently works as professor of practice and director of the Center on Terrorism extremism and counterterrorism at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Jason, thank you for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Great to be with you, Jason. Thank you for the introduction, and I, I look forward to our chat. Jason, the Department of Homeland Security recently released its first Homeland Threat Assessment Report, and while Russia and China continue to get red flags for cyber and social media threats to U.S. national security, white supremacists and neo-Nazis were judged as the biggest non-state actor threat to the U.S., surpassing ISIS and al-Qaeda. That, that's a stunning designation. ISIS and al-Qaeda have obvious destructive capabilities. How big of a threat are white supremacists and other far-right militias to America? It's a significant threat. The uh, Homeland uh, Security Threat Assessment, which was produced uh, in, in mid-October, really highlight the, the, the scale um, in which and the intensity in which some of these uh, white supremacists have been carrying out terrorist attacks, particularly during the 2018 to through 2019 time period. There's a, a graph um, within the Homeland Threat Assessment that really shows the, uh, the scale and number of individuals killed by white supremacists in that two-year period, nearly um, 40 individuals relative to homegrown violent extremists, essentially individuals inspired by ISIS and al-Qaeda, which was fewer than, than five. So there, there has been a significant uptick. And it says a lot that this uh, particular administration, the Trump administration, which for some time downplayed the threat from white supremacists, is, is touting that the threat is so significant. And, I, and there's one passage in particular, I think, um, in that assessment that 
that really underscores the uh, the, the violence that we're seeing. Um, and these uh, acts of violence uh, you know, really do tend to focus on um, within sort of the white supremacist target set individuals who may be racially or religious, uh, racial or religious minorities, members of the LGBTQ uh, community. Um, those who promote multiculturalism and globalization. So the number of kinds of potential targets white supremacists could look at is, is quite significant. And I think um, in terms of the, uh, the the threat, I think it became stark when you saw um, Robert Bowers carry out the, the, uh, the terrible attack on the Tree of Life uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I think that in many ways that was an inflection point for federal authorities to start looking at the white supremacist threat more seriously. Prior to that, um, reports like this essentially um, weren't being produced, um, particularly by, by this administration. The, the last significant DHS report on the, the threat of white supremacists and the radical right um, came out in 2009, and it became a, a, a political pinata, unfortunately. So in, in some ways, while the, the report is um, disconcerting to see the, the rise of the white supremacist extremist threat in the United States, it's good to see that there's actually a report being produced by the Department of Homeland Security on the actual threat. You mentioned the Bowers attack in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What do we make of the kidnapping kidnapping plot of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer? Is this a canary in the coal mine, so to speak? That that threat um, and that that targeted kidnapping of uh, Gretchen Whitmer by the uh, so-called uh, uh, militia movement known as the Wolverine um, Watchmen that was a a really serious plot, um, and it, it seems like those individuals were also inspired by the so-called Boogaloo movement as well. And in that plot, you had individuals uh, associated with the, the watchmen who were engaged in um, you know, really uh, serious communication and operational security. Um, they actually carried out training. Um, they, they were individuals um, who, who actually went to, to arrange and changed up the locations in which they were training. They bought special tactical gear. They were carrying out surveillance. Uh, so this was a, a really serious threat. And I think since the initial arrest, um, there were one or two more arrests and, and more information came to light that they were also considering a plot to uh, uh, harm the, the governor of Virginia as well, all, all under the onus uh, or the, the perception of the and being motivated by the idea somehow that um, their their rights um, were being stomped upon by um, the the decision by the the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, to um, have Michigan um, put in a, a a lockdown because of COVID nineteen, and also the perception that uh, so called leftists were trying to take their guns, right? So they they were being animated by by this sort of these dual themes that became quite prevalent in the the spring of uh, twenty twenty. Let's break down a couple of these groups that we do know by name. And you mentioned the Boogaloo Boys. Who are the Boogaloo Boys? What do they want? What are they doing? And you know, how many are we talking about? What, what are their numbers? Do we have any idea? Great question. So the, the Boogaloo movement um, is a, a movement that's really kind of a patchwork mix of anti-government, pro-gun, some neo-Nazi, white supremacists, and liberated, liber, libertarian-motivated individuals um, that, that were formed in, in, as a movement in 2019. You know, the name Boogaloo goes back much further than that, you know, about eight years before that, where you saw within um, online communities 
um, the idea within the white supremacist community that a civil war would occur. And Boogaloo was kind of this, this catch-all phrase for uh, an impending civil war um, that would happen. Um, and there would be a, a race war um, that would spring up. And in the Boogaloo Boys, you know, very much an eclectic mix of ideologies. Um, but the one thing that I say that would kind of binds them all together in the context of, of this movement is a, a disdain and hatred for for government. And they are becoming more active um, and they are leveraging protests that are happening throughout the United States, even those related to social um, inequities that exist in the, in the, the wake of the George Floyd protests. You know, while I, I don't see them as really caring that much about social uh, equality, they, they see the protests as a, a mechanism to, to create mayhem, um, to, to create um, violence. Um, and, and they really, I, I think, have, have done um, a, a done a disservice to, to the, the protests that are happening by carrying out acts of violence or planning acts of violence. And there are a couple like really important ones, I think, for listeners to, to be aware of. One in my backyard here in, in California where you had a, an active member of, of the Air Force um, by the name of uh, Stephen Carrillo, who carried out um, a, an att alleged attack um, against a federal uh, police officer in Oakland, California, um, you know, during the, the protests that were happening in Oakland um, in the wake of the George Floyd um, killing. And then the second attack that individual carried out in Santa Cruz against a, uh, a local police officer, um, a deputy sheriff. And I think the targets that Stephen Carrillo um, picked um, and the timing in which he carried out his attacks uh, really illustrate the, the group, um, its focus um, on government and police. And, and whether it's a libertarian um, boogaloo, whether it's an anti-government boogaloo individual, a pro-gun boogaloo individual, it is that um, shared disdain for that government, the U.S. government, that really unites them. Um, and, and these are individuals, too, that are extremely well-armed. Um, in the case of Stephen Carrillo, obviously well-trained. And the second example I want to give your, your listeners uh, uh, some time to think about is an attack um, that was foiled, thankfully, by federal authorities in, in Las Vegas, where you had three individuals um, who were part of the Boogaloo movement who were planning to carry out a Molotov cocktail attack um, on protesters in, in um, related to the George Floyd um, uh, death again. And those individuals were trying to use the protests as a camouflage to, to carry out civil unrest. So in, in the context of the organization, the Boogaloo movement, they, they are, I think, perhaps the most profound threat um, in terms of what we're seeing within the radical right in the United States, because you have individuals who are willing to, to actually be proactive um, and not reactive in the context of trying to, to start um, a, a civil conflict, whereas you have perhaps other larger militia movements like the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters that I see as being more kind of reactionary, reacting to events, as, as opposed to the Boogaloo movement who is trying to um, spark unrest, if that makes sense. Jason, what do you think has given rise to their desire to be more proactive? Uh, that I think that's one of the things that really grabs the attention. We've known that white supremacists have existed for a long time. The KKK, they've been around. But to see such proactive movements taking place right now, what do you think has uh, driven them to this point where they could feel confident in doing so? I think there are a few things at play. One is this uh, perception of uh, government overreach and the perception that state governments are going to take the, the guns 
uh, of individuals. So one theme within the Boogaloo movement is this uh, infatuation with with arms um, and a, a deep concern that their Second Amendment rights may be eroded. And and one of the first times they made their perhaps uh, public debut, um, kind of moving from the online world to the offline world, um, was in Richmond, Virginia, um, in, in January of 2020, when there were these pretty significant um, Second Amendment um, protests that were happening at the state capitol. And that's where you saw um, individuals dressed in Hawaiian shirts with uh, heavy arms and assault weapons um, protesting the potential um, decision by the, the Virginia um, House of Burgess to, to put into place more um, gun measures to, to um, check the uh, expansion in, of, of uh, guns. And I think that is one of the primary motivating factors with individuals um, in this movement. And, and it certainly doesn't help that there's been some rhetoric at the very highest levels of government saying that um, there are um, initiatives to, to take away those guns. Um, you know, you may recall, for instance, President Trump mentioning in April of 2020 um, that the Second Amendment rights were um, going to be completely eroded unless people voted for Republicans, highlighting the need to liberate Virginia, um, Minnesota, and Michigan. So, you know, in, in 2020, you, you, you have that theme as well. The second big issue that's animating um, individuals associated with the Boogaloo Boys in this Wolverine Watchmen militia that was engaged in the kidnapping um, plot of the Michigan governor is this lockdown um, associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and there's certainly a, a perception within the, the Boogaloo movement that that lockdown is an example of government overreach. The perception being um, their ability to, to make um, ends meet um, is being uh, crippled by decisions put forward by um, bureaucrats. And, and that's one thing that the Boogaloo movement has a, a disdain for, um, individuals who they see as bureaucrats who are eroding their um, ability to carry guns and, and to you know, essentially have a, a livelihood um, that is being perhaps damaged because of the, the pandemic and some of the decisions that have come in the wake of it related to the lockdown. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking with Jason Blazakis, a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center. Jason is a terrorism expert who devises strategies to prevent terrorists from gaining access to money and publicity. And we're talking about the rise of white supremacists in the U.S. Another group besides the Boogaloo Boys that have been in the spotlight to some degree have been the Proud Boys. What do we know about the Proud Boys? Are they in the same level as the Boogaloo Boys? So I, I look at the Boogaloo movement as, as being different from the Proud Boys in, in a few ways. The, the Proud Boys are, are more organized. Um, they, they have a, a, a centralized online presence. They are individuals with um, a known leader. Um, they are um, individuals who are different from the Boogaloo Boys in the sense that I look at them as being more reactionary, whereas the Boogaloo Boys are, are more proactive. Um, that doesn't mean that the Proud Boys are, are you know, a, a, a non-threat. They, they are a threat in, in the sense that they, they do go to um, left-leaning cities um, where protests are occurring, where they perceive to be left-wing so-called Antifa individuals and Black Lives Matter protesters um, who are enmeshed in, in protests for social 
um, equality, um, for um, you know, highlighting the fact that there are situations in, in this country where um, police have used um, force um, that has not been proportionate against uh, black um, individuals. And, and in a way, their proud boys are going to these places to intentionally try to provoke conflict. So I, I see them kind of like a, a street gang. Now, they describe themselves as kind of a pro-Western fraternal organization for, for men. Um, and, but I, I look at them more along the lines of a, a neo-fascist group um, that, that hates Islam, that's against immigration, that's against globalization, um, and, and they are highly misogynistic. And they most certainly have um, individuals within the rank and file who adhere to white supremacist ideals, even though the organization disavows white supremacy. I think, again, um, there are individuals within the Proud Boys who are absolutely white supremacists. So they've been around since 2016. Um, they were founded by a guy named Gavin McGinnis, who was the, the co-founder of Vice Media. And in terms of uh, analogs, I, I, I like to compare them to um, a, a group that operated in, in England that was founded by a guy named Tommy Robinson in 2012, known as the English Defense League, which was a uh, essentially a, uh, a, a a kind of protest movement, um, a single issue group that was essentially uh, uh, designed to spark conflict with um, the uh, Muslim community uh, throughout London. So they would, you know, intentionally protest, um, um, you know, Islam. Um, they would protest what they thought was the, the overreach of Sharia in England. Um, and in some ways, I see the Proud Boys doing the same things, going out as kind of a protest movement against the left. Um, so to me, they're more reactionary. Um, they they certainly have been emboldened as well, as, as um, listeners probably are aware of. Um, President Trump specifically um, told them to stand by and stand down. And the organization, when, when they heard those words during the, uh, I think it was the second presidential debate, really got excited um, and developed memes and imagery, um, essentially hearkening to, hearkening to that language of, of President Trump. Um, so they, they, they made shirts, um, they, they developed mottos. Um, I, I think some online researchers have found perhaps even recruitment's gone up and, and they stand ready, particularly during this uh, really difficult time period in America, to to uh, go out and provide quote protection, perhaps even um, to polling locations. Which you know, what they term protection, I would say um, I would term intimidation. And that's one thing I, I worry about the Proud Boys um, being um, perhaps um, near polling places and trying to intimidate individuals who may want to essentially um, exert their ability and, and right to vote. How do you think Joe Biden will treat white supremacist groups if he wins the White House? And, and how do you think those groups are going to react if Biden beats Trump? So that's a really good question. Um, in terms of uh, a Biden administration, I see a, a number of things that would likely happen very differently um, in terms of how the U.S. government uses uh, the tools it possesses to to counter uh, the threat emerging from the radical right to include militia movements and white supremacists. The first thing I think um, something um, that needs to be done is in a re-examination of the current laws. In the United States, the United States does not have a domestic terrorism law. And Congress has a number of very good bills that have been introduced 
to introduce a, a new law um, that would criminalize uh, forms of violence um, that clearly meet the litmus test of, of terrorism that right now um, individuals aren't being charged for. Um, and in some cases, in Michigan, for instance, I think you had six individuals who were charged with state-related terrorism charges because I think in the end, after a coordination between the federal government and, and state authorities, it was probably determined um, that the, the best pathway for those individuals was the prosecution of them through um, state law, not federal law. And I think that really signals um, an issue with federal laws or relates to um, the issue of domestic terrorism. So I, I think that's one thing we will um, see with a, a Biden administration is a re-examination of the current laws and perhaps um, an effort to put in place a domestic terrorism law so we can criminalize um, acts carried out by individuals like Robert Bowers so they can be characterized appropriately as acts of terrorism. Bowers, the individual who carried out the Tree of Life um, synagogue shooting, wasn't charged for an act of terrorism. And that really, I think, starkly illustrates the, the deficiency in U.S. law. And the Trump administration has been unwilling to pass a domestic terrorism law. So that's the first thing I see the Biden administration doing. Second thing I see them doing is acknowledging that there is a transnational aspect to the white supremacist movement. In that sense, um, the U.S. government has a number of tools available to it to, for instance, sanction white supremacist transnational groups that are based overseas. And that tool has only been used in one instance. On April of 2020, the Trump administration designated a group known as the Russian Imperial Movement, um, a ultra-nationalist um, group um, based in, in Russia, as the name implies, that has white supremacist leanings. Um, only one designation using those tools that the State Department and Treasury Department possess. And I think you would see an expansion of the use of those tools by the Biden administration to sanction other white supremacist groups that are based overseas. Why does that matter from a domestic perspective? A lot of these transnational groups have um, linkages, these overseas-based groups, to U.S.-based groups. So I think it would provide more leverage for law enforcement to go after even domestic-based groups who may have those connectivities with transnational foreign-based white supremacist organizations. And then thirdly, I think um, you'll see perhaps a, a reallocation of resources to a greater extent than the Trump administration has done in terms of studying and trying to neutralize um, and counter the threat. In, in that sense, I could see um, perhaps the FBI um, sending in more agents, for instance, to essentially investigate white supremacist groups. I think you would have Department of Homeland Security probably allocate more resources to trying to understand the domestic threat posed by white supremacist groups in the context of the Biden administration. And the Trump administration, one of the primary offices responsible within DHS to actually examine the threat was disbanded. So I, I think you would see that message as well in terms of human resources um, being reallocated in ways to, uh, I, I think, challenge the, the rising threat of white supremacy in the ways that the Trump administration has not done. What, okay, the second question, Jason, that you asked, um, what, what will this radical right in America do should the Biden administration, um, should there be a Biden administration and, and Joseph Biden wins the, uh, the election? I, I think um, there, are, there are a range of possibilities here. Um, I tend to think that there is a lot of rhetoric um, about a so-called civil war happening if uh, Joe Biden wins the election. I actually don't think there will be a, a civil war. I, I, I see what's more likely to occur perhaps um, being low scale um, acts of violence, um, shootings, 
uh, you know, things of that nature at a, at a lower level, um, not a full-blown civil war um, as perhaps those on the radical right hope to, to see. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to occur. Uh, I don't think necessarily we're going to see um, a significant amount of violence actually on election day where um, polling stations are attacked. I think that's probably less likely than, than more likely. Uh, I, I think during the, the post-election period after November 3rd, you may have individuals, um, if it looks like um, Joe Biden's going to win, um, who may be more likely to carry out acts of violence at a lower form and level. Um, and here I'm talking about individuals maybe acting in onesies and twosies, carrying out kinds of actions like we saw Stephen Carrillo carry out in places like Oakland, California, where the federal uh, police officer was killed or the, the killing of the Santa Cruz uh, deputy sheriff. I, I think that's the more likely outcome in terms of the kinds of activities um, we could see. The, the only outlier to that, the only caveat I have is, um, you know, President Trump's rhetoric. Now, if President Trump goes on the record and tries to inspire individuals to challenge the election and, and to um, stand by, if you will, to do something, um, that that is the great outlier to me. And I, I hope the the president, President Trump, if he were to lose, would be responsible um, and, and use appropriate rhetoric that doesn't um, ratchet up tensions that could um, inspire individuals to carry out act of violence. Jason, I wanted to ask you one final question. Is there anything the U.S. can learn and adopt from Germany as it's dealt with neo-Nazis since World War II? In, in terms of the, so right now Germany um, has very strict laws about paraphernalia associated with neo-Nazis, having that paraphernalia, um, exhibiting it, um, having it um, seen publicly and showing it publicly is, is outlawed. And I think given the, the, the free speech uh, rules that we have, the First Amendment that we have here in the United States that... Uh, trying to ban that kind of imagery outright is is a bridge too far. Uh, that's not to say that the Germans um, don't provide us some good examples on, on how to counter the threat. Uh, they have uh, a pretty significant and robust um, set of law enforcement and intelligence officials who are studying the neo-Nazi threat um, that have certainly led to a, a significant number of arrests of individuals associated with the neo-Nazi movement in Germany. And I, I think that would be one way, for instance, the U.S. could learn. And if the, as I mentioned before, if the Biden administration wins, I do see them exerting sort of their influence to put more individuals um, in place who can actually study the threat along the lines, perhaps, of the way the Germans have done. Now, the last thing I would say on Germany is that there are also other challenges related to sort of the German um, situation as it relates to um, the challenge of white supremacy and neo-Nazis. And there have been a number of really good reports in investigative journalists who have highlighted the fact that the German law enforcement and intelligence community, even the military establishment, may be significantly penetrated by individuals who have white supremacist um, leanings. And, and in that sense, I, I think there is this uh, shared um, concern that the United States and Germany may have regarding 
sort of penetration by individuals who may be um, linked to the white supremacist community. So I, I think Germany needs to still do a better job of rooting out those individuals who have essentially infiltrated their national security system to ensure that they can't do harm from within. And I think that's an ongoing challenge in Germany. And I think the U.S. can observe sort of how Germany is trying to counter those challenges, because in, in many of the cases we just talked about today, um, we have seen either active or former military members. And, you know, there are militia movements like the Oath Keepers who have former military, um, former law enforcement, and even in some cases, active law enforcement at the local level and, and active military who who are on their roles. Um, within these militia movements. So the United States, I think, has to do a, a also a better job of understanding the, the threat posed from within. And in some cases, I guess here, um, Germany could provide us um, an example, but also a warning too. The rise in white supremacism has been a worrisome and troublesome trend, and we could certainly look forward to more fluid developments in the days, months, and years ahead. Jason, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. My pleasure, Jason. Take care. We've been joined by Jason Blazakis, a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center. He presently works as professor of practice and director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism and Counterterrorism at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.